Our guest speaker this morning, William Moskling, was born in Mexico City. At the age of six, she arrived with her family in, a Denver, in Denver, a city where her father's family was one of the early founding families. Early founding families. Her heritage laid the framework for her life as a progressive and activist. From her mother's political family, Lillian learned responsibility of Catholic care for the poor. From her father's Presbyterian family, she learned the fullness of biblical love for the poor. No, biblical, yes. Lillian was educated in Catholic schools and two Catholic universities. Loretto University in Colorado and um, Seattle University in Washington State. She spent the following 47 years in the classroom teaching elementary, secondary, and finally college levels. Um, She then retired from teaching at LSUS in 2010. When she was younger, Lillian greatly admired her older sister, a missionary and sister of Loretto, but Lillian chose marriage. She has been happily married to John Mosklin for 47 years and has one daughter and four grandchildren. In 1994, she became a co-member of the Sisters of Loretto, uh, a progressive religious order that had educated her through high school and two years of university. Lillian says she has enjoyed 27 good years in Shreveport, but now she plans to move to Ohio to continue many more years enjoying her grandchildren. We don't like seeing her go. But would you please help me welcome Lillian Moskaland. Good morning. The um, bulletin says that uh, my theme is committed to working for justice and acting for peace. That's the the mission and the the entire heart of what the Sisters of Loretto are. That uh, we work for justice and we act for peace in many different ways in the world. Last November, my husband, who's sitting up here in front with me, and uh, I went to El Paso, Texas. With uh, We were with, um, we too, and 14 other Loretto-associated people. And um, the purpose of that trip which we call a border trip or a border experience, was to learn firsthand from the people who work with immigrants uh, to associate, to accompany mostly, and to share with the people of the border between the United States and Mexico. Um, We were called to this by by our spirit of Loreto. I felt very comfortable, by the way, this morning, because what 
occurs in your church, the spirit that occurs in your church, is exactly what we what we do in Loretto. Uh, the singing, this commitment to the spirit, uh, the, mostly the commitment to a w- liberal way of life. I'm a Catholic, and that sometimes is a paradox in my church at this point especially, to be a liberal. But we at, in the Sisters of Loretto are that way. Um, when we arrived in El Paso, we gathered together in prayer first and then went full blast into what uh, activists and, and those who accompany the, the poor uh, do the first thing we did was go to a, a group called Las Americas. It's a, a legal group of people who have gathered together to pro bono help anyone who needs help to stand before the courts, to ask for asylum, to walk with them if they cannot get asylum, to make sure that the people are safe within the, uh, the process, our legal processes. So we learned a lot about the government when we first got there. That was important for us uh, to see, to learn where we stand as a nation in the immigration pro- uh, process. It's so important for Loretto because in our assembly la- uh, four years ago and then again this last August, we committed as a community to speak to the immigration reform issue. Uh, It's really important when a large community gathers together and speaks in the name of the community, because we've spoken individually or we've we've spoken in committees or networks, but as a group now, we have committed to that in the Sisters of Loretto. Um, If you think of the Sisters of Loretto, you might think of the nuns on the bus, if you've heard of them. That's kind of what we are. The nuns on the on many buses, uh, but anyway, we uh, we spoke with Katie Hudak, who's the director of this uh, of Las Americas, and she told us a lot about asylum, and she told us a lot about people crossing the border and why. So many of us know the why because of poverty, because of torture, because of drug cartels that are forcing the young to become part of the cartel. Went from the ages of 8, 10 years old, they're handed a, a commission by the cartel leaders, and uh, they're told to spy on someone first, and then they're told to just report because the neighborhood is having problems, and that leads them, and they enter into, uh, into the cartels, um, which is, uh, Katie has pointed out very clearly, the largest of which cartels is called the Zetas, and they were trained in Georgia by the United States citizens at, at some place called the School of the Americas, which has changed name now, but it's in Fort, Burning, Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, and these, then they decided that it was much more lucrative to sell drugs than, to, uh, than just to torture, so they began torturing and selling drugs. Uh, and that's how they involved the people. So the, the people coming over... Uh, oftentimes are escaping different things. Katie also told us that very few Mexicans receive asylum 
they generally are are um, are placed into detention centers that I'll talk about later. The reason being because the United States has a pact, a treaty with Mexico. To, and so because of that, they, don't, they can't receive asylum because surely they're not running from torture from a country that wishes to join together with the United States not to have uh, murders regularly. Uh, so very few Mexicans receive asylum. In, when we think of immigrants, we think mostly of Mexicans. The ones that are receiving asylum, however, are generally from Africa, from China, from Central or South America, which is much different, and, uh, and of course, from Canada from, on the other borders. So we learned in, uh, through videos and through talking to people and through speaking with some of the legal people about, uh, about the issues that legal work deals with. And then uh, she spoke about something called detention centers. And Katie told us about detention centers that are throughout the United States. We even have some in, in uh, northern uh, Louisiana. Uh, they, she talked about the detention centers and how they've changed over the years especially because now they're for-profit detention centers, similar to what we hear of for-profit prisons. That means that they have to keep their beds full in order to keep, to bring money so that they can make money and it becomes a big business for us. Uh, she wondered if soon we'd be shareholders. However, they, um, these for-profit um, detention centers are for men, for women, for men and women together, and for children. And that really was one of the things that got me, at least, and I think John as well, interested in going. Why detentions for children? Uh, so we, we pr processed into learning that. Uh, and Katie talked about how the children must stand before a judge when they're, ca when they're caught, and um, they're not allowed a lawyer. So they, no matter whether they're two years old or 15 and 16 years old, they go from two to 17 in the detention centers, and they have to stand before a lawyer, uh, before a judge, with, and tell their story, why they're there. And I'll tell you a little bit later about what some of them said the reason they were there. There's actually, there was one child, but she was not placed in a detention center, who was two months old when she came across the border. Uh, instead, they placed her in a foster home. And um, this next year, she'll be going to Washington, D.C. to a foster home. She can't talk, so they don't know anything about her. She was brought over by a coyote, a person who brings people over. Um, so what we went from Katie talking about the legal part uh, to St. Pius Catholic Church. And the reason we went there is because they work hand-in-hand hand with the detention centers in El Paso, Texas. There are four detention centers in El Paso uh, for children. Uh, of those four, three are for-profit, and one is run by the Lutheran Church. And the Lutheran Church children are the ones that we met because they're allowed to leave uh, the detention center to come out and, and uh, play games and, and sing and dance and, 
and interact with each other. And they also, are in the evening, are allowed to go with a family to sleep in a family home. And then they go back to the detention center in the morning. And so they're, they're much more lenient in the Lutheran. Uh, the, detention, the children in the detention homes for profit do not leave. They stay there permanently, for a year at least. Um, so what we did is we went to St. Uh, Pius, where the children came, and it's called the RICO Center. If any of you are like me and you ever want to research more names you hear, feel free to write things down. They're R-I-C-O Center, RICO Center. And there they came, uh, 15 children uh, came that day, and they played games with us. Some of it was singing games, some of it was drawing, and we sat around and, and did a lot of the drawing with them and talked to them. And although we weren't allowed to take pictures of the children, they really, the picture still stays with us. There was one little five-year-old boy, they were singing a song about, I'm from so-and-so, and I'm going so, I'm from such-and-such a place, and I'm going to such-and-such a place. And why am I going to such-and-such a place? Because I'm going to grow there. And this one little five-year-old boy said, uh, my name is Eddie, and I'm from El Salvador. And I'm here because I'm looking for my mama. And they said, where are you going? He says, I'm going to my mama. So he was positive. He was very positive. We learned that there are 11,000, 11,000 unaccompanied minors that cross the border in search for their parents. That's a large number of children. These children leave their villages. They cross the border in any way they can, on inner tubes, walking, being carried by people that they've paid or their families have, uh, not their families, but the families that are keeping them in Mexico have paid to bring them over. Uh, and they're generally coming with a telephone number or an address that may be 10 years old. So when they try to call, when the government tries to call that telephone number or go to that address, they've never heard of the parents because they've migrated. They, they, they work the fields. They travel. They, they uh, do whatever they can to survive. So the children, when they get here, oftentimes don't find their parents. But the government does make an effort to find their parents. And within a year, the, de the detention home has to either find a parent or a relative or someone who will take the children uh, or um, send them back home. They go back to wherever they're from. Um, the RICO Center at the St. Pius Catholic Church uh, gathers the children, and they also gather funds to help, the, help dress the children when they go back. Oftentimes, they're just with a shirt, pants, and shoes, and they're not allowed to take a luggage with them. The government, when it ships them back, it just ships them back in shirt, dress, and sh or pants and shoes. So the RICO Center makes an effort to buy jackets for them, and as they're boarding the bus, they give them jackets because they generally leave in December, and December is a cold time of year. So what we, John and I, uh, we decided that that's our Christmas present. 
we now give to the RICO Center, so the, uh, to Norma Lujan, who's the director, and we give to them in order to buy jackets. Our next stop was Annunciation House. Ruben Garcia, in 1978, was a young man who came to El Paso and began to be interested in the immigrants. And so he opened this building. He's not a religious person. He's, he's just a lay person like the rest of us. And he opened this house called Annunciation, which he called Annunciation. And from that point on, he decided that the best way to learn about the immigrant issue is to become part of it, to give tours, to have men and women, business people, come and, and experience a border experience, generally of a week or a day, uh, 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 whatever length of time the people have. Sometimes some people come for months. So Reuben has been working at this since 1978. He's just going to be opening a second Annunciation House. It's taken that long. When we went to Annunciation House, we were, we were greeted by Kristen, a young volunteer who started, came on a border experience and fell in love with the work. And now she's been there five years and doesn't see an end to when she wants to leave. She's probably, she just had graduated from college, so she's in her 20s somewhere and doesn't plan to leave. Um, Reuben talked a lot about, the, uh, about again, the legal element, the, the government element, the dangers. But he also talked about the young people who have knocked on his door, uh, some of the good, some of the bad. People, uh, individuals, families. We saw a family with three children had just arrived the night before. They're homeless people, and he, he gives them a home. And they can stay according to Reuben, for as long as they need, whether it's an overnight or it's a year or it's two years, Reuben keeps them there. It's a three-story building and uh, painted wonderfully and, and made to be, to be home. When we walked uh, down the hall of Annunciation House, I looked over to the right and there was this empty uh, closet-like, well, it was a large closet but it wasn't empty. It was full of, of uh, baby strollers that he gives out to the people because a lot of them have babies when they come. Um, we also decided that Reuben was part of our Christmas gift to each other. We went also for a main purpose, uh, and that was to celebrate Mass at Sunland Park. Sunland Park in El Paso is right between El Paso and and New Mexico, the border of New Mexico. And we celebrated together through a fence with the community of, in Mexico and the community, our community, which came from both New Mexico and El Paso. And, of course, the fence was between us. There was a, a priest from, uh, from Mexico and our priest from, Saint, uh, from, New, from New Mexico because the El Paso priest was out of town at that time. Um, so on All Souls Day, and reminds me of your church, on All Souls Day, we went to, uh, to Sunland Park in the hot, very, very hot uh, day, and we sat in chairs, and when we arrived, there were maybe one row, 
within about 15 minutes, people started coming and coming and coming. And they brought chairs for everybody. And finally, that, that entire dusty field was filled with people. Uh, I meant to bring the shirts that we wore. They were beautiful uh, handmade shirts saying, uh, I was a stranger and you took me in. Um, so we celebrated together, separated by a fence uh, on the border, and we were accompanied the entire time by border guards. There was a border guard to our left, there was a border guard to our right. As we got there, there were a bunch of children that came from their, they'd been sitting on their pew, on their pews and their chairs, and uh, they came to the fence and they started talking to us, and, and in, I speak Spanish and so do a few of the others, so we, so of course we, uh, we communicated with them until the border guard decided that that was dangerous. So we were to step away from the fence, and we weren't allowed to, on our side. The other side, of course, the kids were still there at the fence saying, come on, let's, it's okay, we can talk, and we said, no, we can't, because if we approach the fence, they might not allow this mass to go on. And so we had to respect, uh, respect the border guard in that way. And uh, we didn't want to become too friendly. That's what the border guard, I'm sure, thought. Uh, but we experienced a mass, and we experienced camaraderie, and we experienced communion, and we experienced their life as well as, as, well as uh, ours. Are you timing me, John? Because I don't want to talk too long. <laughs> Uh, the, the, after, after the border, we went to, uh, we prepared in order for our next day, which was the highlight, really, to me, of our trip. We crossed into Juarez, Mexico, and uh, by walking across the International Bridge, and then we were met by a wonderful lady called Betty Campbell. She's a sister of mercy, and she lives in Juarez, uh, with a with a father, a redemptor's father called Peter Hind. Betty is seventy eight years old, and Peter is eighty nine, and they are younger than I am. They do everything, and they go everywhere. And she walked us through Juarez, uh, the the city, and onto the bus, which we took a local bus with uh, with uh, very bumpy seats until we got to her house. Her house is on a hill where you can, uh, in, a, in a poor area of Mexico, of, of Juarez, which is saying something because it's all pretty poor right now. But uh, they, uh, they live on this hill, and it's called Tabor House. Betty Campbell and, and uh, Peter Hind live together in this, well, together separately, in this house. And... Uh, People come to the house. People who, who, they're there. The purpose of Tabor House is to receive people who need a safe place to be, whether it be for an hour or whether it be for longer again. So, uh, and they also have border trips. They also organize border trips if people are interested. Um, we went in order to talk to some people. So we had a young woman come in who talked to us, uh, Celia, uh, who, became, who was wonderful. She's a 19-year-old who, through grants that Betty has helped her get, got to the university. And uh, this next year will be graduating at, at 20. 
and she's going to get her master's, also from a grant that Betty Camp, uh, Sister Betty uh, fixed for her. And um, she's going to study biomedicine. She's going to graduate in medicine and, and going into biomedicine. And we asked her, after that, will you go live in the United States, or where will you go to live? And she says, oh, no. She says, I'm coming home. So she's going to come back and work in Juarez. When I was young, I used to go to Juarez, and it was a happy place. Mexicans, Hispanics, tend to be a happy person, people, even though we, don't, we suffer a lot, the poor. Uh, the poor suffer a great deal. But there's still a happy music, uh, smiles. This time, nobody smiled. We didn't hear any music in the streets. People looked down. In the bus coming back, I made eye contact, contact with a lady, and she looked at me and then looked down. That would never have happened before. But they're afraid. They're afraid of who, who might be looking at them. They're afraid of the cartels. Women... Generally, women are being killed every day. Uh, we went on a good day because only 10 people had been killed that morning. So, uh, but it's like a young bo- family, a family that we met, that I met, uh, their 16-year-old child had gone to a birthday party from El Paso. He was a had friends in Juarez, so he went to the Juarez. Uh, Twenty children at that birthday party were gunned down for no reason. They don't know who killed them. They don't know why. But they were making music, I guess. So anyway, uh, we talked to Celia. We talked to her mother. We talked to another lady called Emilia Requenes Garcia, um, who made everybody at ease. She, she helped us to sing. She made us feel comfortable. And then she told us her story. She was, had been a religious sister until she was attacked and raped and became very interested in activism. And so she became an activist. She, uh, over the years, left, uh, left the, her order and is now working totally with the poor in uh, El Paso, and yet she couldn't stop smiling. You could feel the spirit inside of Emilia as well. uh, As our group left, one of our people, one of our group, a young woman uh, who works at the United Nations with the Sisters of Loreto, uh, asked Betty, she said, how can you live in this place when there's so much fear around you? And Betty's answer, I I copied it myself because I I wanted to remember it, is fear is always with us everywhere we go, but God is also with us. And I trust God, not fear. And I trust the greatness of God. And that seemed to be the entire theme of what what we experienced that border experience was one of trust and one of love. And that's what we came away with, that trust and that love. So next fall, there's going to be another border experience, and we're going to be going. 
It's not to El Paso this next time. It's to Arizona Nogales. At the border in Arizona, uh, it's a very different experience. We, we sit and we, tr- and we converse with and we help a lot of the people that are, that are being sent back. The government will not send you back with a lot of material. You go sometimes without shoes. So one of the things that we do, we collect socks and shoes to take to the, to the people crossing the border. And um, there, it, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to learn. There's people to talk to like Reuben and Betty and Peter. If I encourage you, if ever you are offered, if ever you are interested uh, in a border experience, uh, get a hold of Ruben Garcia in El Paso, Texas. Everybody knows Annunciation House. Um, become interested in, or get a hold of me, get a hold of uh, Sisters of Loretto. They're on, they're on the internet at lorettocommunity.org. Um, if not, just become involved somehow. I know you do. I know because I've seen you today and I've, and I've seen the spirit that works here. It's truly powerful, and I thank you for that. Why did I get involved in this? The reason being, is it time? Over? Oh, I'm going to quit. <laughs> another day, another story. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>